We have come as far as verse 19 in chapter 9. We've looked at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, how the Lord miraculously revealed himself to Saul. Saul then struck blind, uh, sitting for several days, musing, fasting for three days, and then Ananias sent to him, a man from Damascus, uh, to lay his hands on him that he might receive his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. We looked at that last week. Verse 18 says, Immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. We've come to verse 19 where it says, And when he had received meat, it's food, meat sounds good to me right now, when he had received meat, he was strengthened. That's because over in the second half of verse 9, it tells us he had been fasting for three days. When he received food, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples that were Damascus. Now, you can imagine, you know, because nobody was texting each other, emailing each other. There was no Twitter. There was no television. Imagine when Ananias walks into the fellowship with Saul of Tarsus uh, the first Sunday morning. Are you out of your mind? He came here to kill us. We heard he was going. Oh, no, he got saved. You believe that? He's a spy. You're an idiot. You know, you you can imagine, because they're going to see the same problem in Jerusalem with the apostles. They feel the same way. So what's what's it like for Saul? You know, these people he had hated. He had persecuted, he drugged them off the prison, he made them blaspheme the name of Jesus. Now Ananias, when he comes to pray for him, says, Brother Saul. And now he walks into this group of people, and there are brothers and sisters in Christ. He looks at them, he had hated them three days before. How remarkable it must have been. It says, Saul was certain days with the disciples that were there at Damascus, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. It's the only time in the book of Acts that the, the phrase son of God is used. Paul preached that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, was the son of God. No doubt he is in probably um, some of the synagogues where maybe these people from Cilicia and so forth He's from Tarsus, had heard of him in Jerusalem, uh, the same type of synagogue that perhaps Stephen had confounded people in. Uh, They say there were at least 40 synagogues in Damascus at this point in time. So Saul may have stepped right into the place he was most comfortable in, most familiar with, and no doubt because he's this prominent rabbi, student of Gamaliel from Jerusalem, When that person came, the scroll was handed to them, and they were given the floor in the synagogue. And how they must have been shocked when they gave Rabbi Saul the the scroll, and he opened it, and he began to preach that Jesus was the Son of God in the synagogue. But all that heard him were amazed, of course. They're all astounded and said, Is not this he who destroyed them which called on his name, this name of Jesus in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent also. He wanted to do it here, that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. They're they're standing here thinking, this is crazy. This is the rabbi from Jerusalem. He's standing here telling us about Jesus. Isn't this the guy that came here? Interesting, it says to destroy them. That's a word in the Greek that means to ravage to waste. Sometimes it was used of a wild boar destroying the fields and destroying the flocks. They said, isn't this the guy that came to destroy this movement? Now he's preaching Christ. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving, and he only has the Old Testament, proving that this is the very Messiah, proving that Christ was the Messiah. It says that he continued to grow, and obviously so should we. In the days we're living in, they should be making us 
grow. The days we're living in, no doubt today, should be refining us as these days were for him. He's increasing, he's growing, and so forth. Now, somewhere in this process here, probably between 22 and 23, it's hard to be dogmatic, it says in 23 that after many days were fulfilled, now the Jews took counsel how they might destroy him there in Damascus. Now, he tells us in Galatians, he said this, For you have heard of my lifestyle in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God, and I wasted it, sacked it, and profited in the Jews' religion above my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But... When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, so remarkable that he sees that, and called me by his grace, certainly he knew that, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, immediately I conferred conferred not with flesh and blood. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, But I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days and so forth. So the book of Acts just says after many days. Paul seems to say it was a period of three years. It says here that he goes in Galatians to Arabia, and uh, some try to say, well, that's Petra, the the Nubatia, and all this. But Paul tells us in chapter 4 of Galatians, he says that Mount Sinai, that there's an allegory between the bondwoman and the free woman. It's an allegory for these are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. So Paul tells us that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. All you have to do is read your Old Testament. It says that God appears to Moses at Horeb, and he says, you're going to bring my people to this mountain. Every map that has any age that's worth its salt shows you that Horeb is in Saudi Arabia. It's not in the Sinai Peninsula. It's on the other side of the the eastern edge of the Red Sea, the eastern fork. That's where Midian is. That's where Moses was taking care of the flocks of Jethro. That's where the Lord appeared to him, and he said, you're going to come here. So no doubt, in my mind, that Saul, now Paul, makes that journey, he says specifically to Arabia, No doubt he goes to this mount of God where Moses had communed with the Lord, received the commandments, and he's there for three years. What was that like? You know, this guy is like the student of students. He becomes the theologian of the New Testament, writing between 13 or 14 books, depend on your count. Uh, But what was it like for him to be there alone? With the Lord, we we know this. It tells us in First Corinthians chapter eleven that He said, "I delivered unto you that which I emphatic me I received from the Lord emphatic Himself." He says this whole thing with communion. I didn't learn this from people. He said the Lord revealed this to me. Somewhere sitting in Arabia, the Lord must say, "Hey, you missed this. You need to understand not the Passover. I understand you need to understand this now." He tells us in Galatians chapter 1 that the gospel he preached, he received directly from the Lord. He said, I didn't go to Jerusalem and conferred with the apostles. I just got alone with the Lord. And the gospel he preached was from Jesus. You can imagine this guy, how on fire he was as a completed Jew. You know, we were in Israel years ago. A good friend of mine uh, that's gone home to be with the Lord, Victor Smadja, uh, in 1955, I believe it was, 
started the first Messianic congregation in Israel on Prophet Street, and that was so close to the founding of the nation in 48, they didn't know what to do with them. So they gave them, they legitimized them, gave it to them. Today, you know, they don't want to do that for anybody who wants to start a Messianic fellowship, but it was the oldest Messianic fellowship in the country, and we became friends with them. Uh, he put an ad in the Jerusalem Post and the papers, if you want to know more about Yeshua, just write in and I'll send you 11,000 responses. You know, he was just one of those guys. And what he did was he studied all the ancient rabbis, you know, for Kabbalah, just studied everything. And anywhere there's anything about Jesus that would blow their minds, he put it in publications. And the Orthodox rabbis hated him. They didn't know what to do with him. He was this remarkable guy. So I had him come speak one, on one of our trips. He came and he gave a study. And then he was doing a Q&A. And one of our folks said, now, when were you converted? He said, uh-uh. He said, you were pagans. You were converted. He said, I was completed. He said, I, already, I, I always had the right God. I just didn't have all the information. He said, I was completed. He said, you were converted. And you, you figure how Saul must have felt in the middle of all this, his studies, his love of the scripture, his zeal against the church, and all of a sudden, Jesus appears to him and demonstrates his grace to him and then talks to him personally about the communion table. And he realizes what every lamb looked forward to was the lamb of God. The good news that he preached, he said, I heard it from Jesus himself. He said, if anybody comes with any other gospel and preaches anything else, let him be eternally damned. Whether it's an angel or a human being, this is the only gospel and you can imagine then it says here, and we're going to read down a little here in chapter 9, but he says in Galatians, and after I came back from Arabia, evidently he goes back to Damascus. He's so powerful in his preaching then that they drive him, they have to save his life from the Jews and let him down over the wall in a basket. And then he goes to Jerusalem, and nobody wants to trust him there, and Barnabas has to say to the apostles, hey, this guy's legit. This is for real. You know, told his wife over three years ago he was going to get bread and he never came back again. You know, uh, you know, how do you think this works? This guy's legit. And then the apostles received him. He started fellowship there. And it says he spent a number of days with Peter. Now imagine what that was like. Peter must have said, you know, he must have took him on a tour of old Jerusalem. Oh, now this is what, here's Gethsemane. Saul, this is where he sweat blood. And we were close enough to hear him say, Abba. You know, and Saul, here's the upper room where you had, the, yeah, yeah, he told me about that in Arabia. What? Yeah, yeah, he showed me the communion. I know all about that. You know, just, you can imagine what were the questions he asked Peter? What, what, what light came into their conversation as both of them talked about what the Old Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures, you know, brought forth? Wouldn't you love to have had a tape Three days of tapes of Peter and Paul, in English, of course, talking with each other about Jesus and the covenants and so forth. How incredible that must have been. And how passionate he was, you know. He said he's a debtor to the Jew and to the Gentile. He said he's the least of all, you know, that should be saved. He said, in fact, I'm just a trophy that God put on his mantelpiece to, in First Timothy to prove that anybody can be saved. If I can get in, anybody can get in. The chief of sinners. He says, he, he, it says here, but Saul increased, verse 22, the more in strength he confounded the Jews that dwell at Damascus, proving them that this was the very Messiah. And after many days were fulfilled, no doubt that's his time in Arabia, the Jews took counsel to kill him. Now what he used to do to the Christians, they're doing to him. But their laying in await was known of Saul, People got word to him, and they watched the gates, the Jews, day and night, wanting to kill him. This is going to be the rest of his life, by the way. And then the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. <laughs> so here's Saul of Tarsus didn't come into to Damascus the way he thought he was going to come in, and he didn't leave the way he thought he was going to leave. He came in blind, led by the hand, believing in Jesus, and when he left, they were letting him down over the wall in a basket. He, you know, no authority. Just so interesting to, to look at. He mentions this in Second Corinthians, by the way. 
So it says they let him down over the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he wanted, he essayed, wanted to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe that he was a disciple. Nah, this guy's a spy. We know this. He was doing this all over. Are you kidding me? I can't believe you brought that guy in here. Did you ever feel like that? We Look, there are people in this church that have gotten saved, and their relatives have said to me, don't believe it. I know this guy. Don't believe it. He's not saved. He's pulling. He's just here. Don't believe it. You know, in fact, I have relatives that when they heard I was saved said the same thing. Don't, don't, that's, you know, he's going flying saucers, drugs, what's next, Jesus, you know. They were all afraid, so amazing, and they refused to believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, now Barnabas is from Cyprus, the area of Cilicia is close to Tarsus, where Paul grew up. So they had a lot in common. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how that he had three things. He said he saw the Lord on the way to Damascus. He saw the Lord. Paul must have gone, you know. He saw the Lord and he, the Lord, had spoken to him, and he has preached boldly in Damascus. So Barnabas tells him the three things. Look, what happened to him was a persecutor of the church. The Lord appeared to him. He seen him, knocked him off his horse. And then the Lord spoke to him. And now he's, he was preaching the, the gospel boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. And then it says, no doubt, they trusted Barnabas. It says he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And again, 15 days with Peter. He says he saw others who appeared to be pillars in the church, the Lord's brother James and John. He says the ones he didn't see, the ones he did see. But I just can't imagine what it must have been for him at that time to be in Jerusalem spending time with these other guys. How remarkable. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. No doubt he's in this same synagogue that Stephen had been in. He disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Yeah, interesting, taking up Stephen's ministry after he voted for him to be, to, to be killed. Which when the brethren knew it, they brought him down to Caesarea. So they hear that Saul is going to get killed. Um, he has been such a blessing to them. And no doubt with his intellect, they were all learning things as well together. And now they hear that the Jews want to kill him. So they take Saul and they take him to Caesarea. Now this is Caesarea, not Caesarea Philippi up in the mountains by Mount Hermon. This is Caesarea on the coast, which at that time was the largest seaport um, in Israel. We've go, I've been there many times. Uh, it is still remarkable today to go there and see what's left of the, the amphitheater and so forth. And the Romans, they built these huge long piers. They had skin divers that poured underwater concrete. The Romans, 2,000 years ago, understood how to make concrete set up underwater, and they poured these huge piers out into the, the breakwater so that there was calm enough for the ships to come in. It was a huge port. Philip, no doubt, is there at this point in time. And uh, they take Saul there, uh, and from there they're going to send him to Tarsus. They're going to send him home. But it's just remarkable, one of these large seaports of the day. Saul is taken there. They're worried about his life. It says, and from Caesarea, and they send him forth to Tarsus, Scholars argue he's there four to eight years. They're not sure where, and he ends up in Antioch after that. But that's where he grew up, in Tarsus. What's it like for him to come home? His old Jewish buddies are there. He must have blew their minds. I don't know if his old Jewish mom and dad are still alive. Must have blown their minds. Imagine him coming back. You know, Saul, we were so worried. Your wife told you you went out to get a quart of milk, and she hadn't seen you in three years. You know, you know, just you can imagine him coming home at this point in time. And then in verse 31, Luke gives us 
the fourth summary of the church in the book of Acts. This is the fourth time he tells us this is what the church looked like and this is what the church was doing. He says here, then had the churches rest. <laughs> you know, they didn't have any rest. It tells us it tells us in chapter eight, after Stephen is killed, and it says Saul was consenting to his death. And it says there was great persecution against the church was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. And it said, and Saul made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison and so forth. Then he comes back to Jerusalem as a believer, and the church still doesn't have rest because now he's upsetting the whole Jewish community, preaching Christ. And it says, so finally they put him on a boat to save his life. They get him out of there. They send him back to his hometown, the Tarsus. And Luke says, then at that point had the churches rest throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Churches, plural. How many were there? Remarkable at this time. And the churches were edified. And look what it says. They were walking in the fear of the Lord. Now, that's not torture. That's the reverence of God. Says the fear of the Lord is clean. It's good. Uh, they were, you know, it's not cowering in fear. They were walking in the fear of the Lord, which is a good thing. And it says, and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, and they were all multiplied. Very interesting verse. It's the first time in the Book of Acts that subjective action is attached to the Holy Ghost. Up until this point, every time we hear about the Holy Ghost. He's giving power, the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on them. This is the first time in the book of Acts it says they received comfort from the Holy Spirit. You can get that in your bedroom tonight before you go to bed, you know. We need that. I don't know about you guys. I sure need it, you know, that I can get alone with him. And part of what he does, yes, he empowers us, but he's so much more personal than that. And the Holy Spirit comforts us. The Bible tells us he guides us. He teaches us. He takes the things of Jesus and shows them to us. And it's always he. And I like the King James says Holy Ghost because it almost gives us a little more, gives a little more idea of what we're talking about. Jesus said, I have been with you. I shall be in you in John chapter 14. So here the Holy Spirit, the very spirit of Jesus He's called the Spirit of Jesus in one of our chapters coming up. It says that he was then comforting his bride, his church. How wonderful. This is a church that was, there was intolerance, there was anger, there was life-threatening, and uh, things as they calmed down, it says, and the Holy Spirit was there to give comfort. I am thankful that, that he does not change, that he's still the same. Now, we're going to park Paul in Tarsus. We led him there for a couple of years. And we're going to come back and look at Peter. And his ministry now, because there's rest at the church in Jerusalem, he's starting to do some itinerant things, which he didn't do earlier. He stayed there when other disciples were scattered. He stayed in Jerusalem. Now we start to see Peter traveling and speaking. And, and the book of Acts now picks up his ministry through here, we're going to look at it tonight, and then into chapter 10 as he goes to the house of Cornelius in Caesarea, and Peter brings the gospel to the Gentiles. I don't think he intentionally did it, but while he's preaching to them, the Holy Ghost falls there. It tells us here now, it came to pass as Peter passed through all quarters. So there's no persecution. He's traveling he came down also to the saints, the believers, which dwelt at Lydda. Now, is this, are these communities there because it tells us that Philip was caught away of the Spirit, but then he preached in all the cities from Azotus up to, up, up to Caesarea? We're not sure. But he comes there, and there's believers, maybe from the day of Pentecost, 
but he comes down to the area of Lydda, 23 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And there's a community of believers there. And he found certain a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed for eight years, and he was sick of the palsy. There's one word that the New Testament uses about cripples, and it means just to be crippled. Sometimes it says palsy. This word is paralytikos. It means to be paralyzed. This guy's been laying paralyzed for eight years. He's a man, so it must have been through an accident. And he's been in bed for eight years, paralyzed. And Peter said to him, so they must have brought Peter in to see him. He must have been someone that everybody loved, to Aeneas. Peter says to him, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole, arise and make thy bed. And he rose immediately. Now, Peter has this remarkable sense. He says, Jesus Christ maketh there, in the King James has the ETH on the end, which tells us it's a present tense. It means Jesus Christ is presently, right now, healing you, making you whole. Aeneas, what's happening to you right now, what you feel in your body, this is Jesus Christ right now healing you, making you whole. And he had heard the Lord this, so Peter says, Arise, make thy bed, and he arose immediately. Now, by the way, I'm always amazed at these when when you see the Lord do this. Any of you have been sick, torn ACL, broken leg, knee replacement, whatever it might be, you know that after a couple weeks, you need to go to rehab. You need to get your muscle strength back. You lay around for a couple weeks and everything starts to, to wither. Everything needs to come back. This guy's been laying on his bed for eight years, paralyzed. And Peter says, hey, you know, the Lord's healing you. Get up and make your bed. <laughs> Don't be sloppy. You know, get up and make your bed. Get up. That means there was a, immediately, there was neuropathways. Immediately there was tendons. Immediately there was muscles. Immediately there was balance he hadn't used in, in almost a decade. Immediate, you have to understand the, the miraculous thing that has to take place. Ask a doctor if you're friends with a doctor or a therapist. What has to happen for somebody who's been laying paralyzed for eight years to get up and make their bed? Immediately. He doesn't say, give me the next six months in therapy and I'll make my bed. I don't want people to think I'm sloppy. It says, it says he immediately got up and he made his bed and all, notice that word there, all, please, all that dwelt at Lydda, in King James Saron is Sharon, the, the plains of Sharon there by the plain of Sharon, by the uh, Mediterranean is beautiful. The Rose of Sharon is there, which is actually a lily. It's just beautiful. All that dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him. And notice this. It says they turned to the Lord. Uh, interesting. That word turned is used seven times in the book of Acts, and it's only used of conversion. So the impact of this, these are people that knew him, probably people who loved him. He'd been paralyzed for eight years, and they get called in, and he's there whistling them while he works, making his bed, straightening up. You know, he's got the bissel, he's vacuuming. You know, and it says all that saw him, they're so overwhelmed they turned in faith to the Lord. Now, that's setting the stage for another circumstance. Now there was at Joppa. Joppa is about 10 miles east on the Mediterranean from Lydda, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is Dorcas. If I was her, I wouldn't have interpreted it. I like Tabitha way better than Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds. Notice which she did. She didn't just profess them. She did them. So there's, there's a, this is an interesting thing now. He comes to Joppa. It's the first time we hear Peter's there. You're familiar with Joppa. Uh, Joppa is where Hiram, who was a friend of David, 
floated down huge cedar beams from Lebanon to build the temple in Jerusalem. And they were brought in at Joppa and then remarkably loaded up and hauled, you know, 33 miles, 30 some miles to Jerusalem, moving these huge things. Joppa is where a prophet named Jonah fled and got a ship because he hated the Gentiles and he didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach. Here we have another one of God's prophets is here at Joppa because he's going to go to Cornelius, a Gentile, after this and see the Lord move. Interesting set of circumstances because Peter goes to Joppa and from Joppa to Caesarea, the ministry amongst the Gentiles begins. We're here tonight because there was a guy, Aeneas, that was laying around for eight years that Peter came down and healed so that the people at Joppa could hear about it and bring him there because Tabitha was dead and he raises her from the dead and it says everybody there does the same thing. There's a great conversion there. And at Joppa then, the Lord's going to tell him, he's at the house of Simon and Tamar, this is what I want you to do here. There's these Gentiles coming. When they get here, I want you to go with them he goes to Caesarea, which is the Roman capital, not Jerusalem. It was Caesarea. That's where Pilate had his palace there. He would come temporarily to Jerusalem at different places. In fact, I've been many times there to Caesarea. And there's where they found a stone there in their excavations because the New Testament talks about Pontius Pilate. There was no record in archaeology, you know, so it was one of the places where biblical critics loved to pick on the Bible and say, see, the Bible's not true. But this is what the Lord did. Are you interested? I'll tell you if you're interested. Okay. The Lord had the Egyptians build the Aswan Dam. Anybody know that was 70-something, I think. They built the Aswan Dam on the Nile River, which slowed down the speed of the river. Of course, it gave them turban and so forth. But as the, the speed of the Nile slowed down when it came into the Mediterranean, less silt washed up on the coast of Israel. It would, it would force it north. And as long as there was this silt, there were these huge sand dunes in Israel, like Avalon, huge sand dunes everywhere. Well, when they built the Aswan Dam, the, the silt stopped flowing at the same speed, and the sand dunes started to go down. Israeli helicopter, military helicopter, going down the coast for their security, happens to notice this huge horseshoe in the sand. So they told their archaeologists, they go and they uncover the amphitheater from Caesarea, and then the whole city's there. They start to excavate it, and when they excavate Caesarea, they find the plaque there that says Pontius Pilotus, that he was the governor. And the Lord said to all the Bible critics, nah, 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 you know. So the Bible, you give the archaeologists time, they always, pro they always prove the Bible true. So the, 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 the Egyptians built the Aswan Dam so we could find out that the Bible knew what it was talking about when it was talking about Pontius Pilate. So it, he says, if Peter comes here to Joppa, Hiram, um, Jonah, how many of you guys have been to Joppa? Bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. Um, you can go there today. Obviously, sometimes when we're in Israel, we stop there. Um, the Romans would come in and take Joppa. They didn't want any competition with Caesarea. But the Jews rebelled during the Jewish rebellion, and they held up there at Joppa. The Romans came in and slaughtered 3,000 Jews and took Joppa at that point in time. And it was under Roman control for centuries until the Muslims came in. And they then took over Joppa and slaughtered 20,000 Christians when they took it over. And then the son of Saladin, he was the one who, who took that and did that. And it remained in their hands until Napoleon came to Joppa. And Napoleon drove them out and rebuilt the citadel there. So there was a, a fortress there. But again, then the son of Saladin comes back and drove out Napoleon again. And it went through the Mamelukes and it was there in, until the, the Turks ran that whole area. And uh, 
it was in the hands of that part of the Muslim world until Richard the Lionheart comes to Joppa and he drives them out and and then the the Muslims come back finally and they drove the Crusaders out and they had it under their control till 1948 when the Jews come back to Israel and and Saladin tore it down. There was nothing there. He just destroyed it. Well, when the Jews come back, one of the major places in 1948 that the ancient people came to was their ancient port of Joppa, which was a mess. It's beautiful now. You can go there. There's places to eat. It's 150 foot above the Mediterranean. You can see it's just beautiful there today. I don't think we're ever going back to Israel again. It's too complicated now. But in, after the rapture and after the return of Jesus, I'll take you and I'll show you that uh, what I'm saying is true. So it's this beautiful place there on the Mediterranean. And he's there at Joppa. There was a disciple there named Tabitha, which by interpre- interpretation is Dorcas. Both words mean gazelle. And this woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. It wasn't just talk. She cared for the less fortunate. And the, the New Testament is taking note of it, by the way. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died. Well, that's what I would say. You can really tell you're sick when that happens. She was sick and she died. Now, God's timing. She dies then because Peter, Peter is at Lydda, and because she dies then, God's perfect timing, he comes to Joppa. Because he comes to Joppa, the door opens up to the Gentiles. So there's a plan here. The Lord loves it when a plan comes together. So she's sick, she dies, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. So this is one of the great verses that, that tell us about the Tahora. Um, Orthodox Jews still do this today. When someone dies, um, the Hevra Kadesh, the Holy Society, come and they wash the body, uh, the Tahora. If it is a man that died, it'll be men that do it. We know a girl sat outside, heard them talking to her father who's dead. Mr. Cohen, we're going to do this now. Mr. Cohen, we're going to roll you over. Then the last bucket they pour over the head, they wash the body, and then they wrap it. Um, that wrap was called the Tachrachim. Um, Gamaliel, the teacher of Saul of Tarsus, decided in his day, the Talmud tells us, that it wasn't right for people to be born into the world in poverty and die and just, you know, terrible circumstances and for the wealthy to be buried with their jewels and their expensive clothing and so forth. So Gamaliel Gamaliel made an edict in Jerusalem while Jesus was alive that from Ecclesiastes and from Ezekiel that when a babe comes, it's, it's naked, it's washed, it's salted, and it's wrapped, that the way we come into the world should be the same way that we go. So Jesus... When, he's di- when he dies, we're in John's Gospel. We'll get there if the Lord tires. If we don't, you can ask Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus yourself. But they came, and it says they took Jesus' body, and they dealt with it according to the manner of the Jews. So you imagine these two old guys got this body down and washed it. The Tahura. They washed the body. They took the thorns out of his brow. They, they washed his back that had been scourged. They cleaned the nail marks on his hand, and they washed him. And then they wrap him in this big shroud, which was called the Takrakim. You would lay on it, then they would fold it over your head, and then they would tie your ankles together, your knees together, your hands to your side, and your mouth shut. They didn't wrap you. This is not Egypt. They didn't wrap you like a mummy. And then they would pack all of the herbs and stuff in the folds. And that's why when they come to the tomb in the morning, they see they see the Takrakim laying flat. And they know he's not in there. And it says the cloth that was around his head is folded up, laying on the side. Now, here with Dorcas, Tabitha, 
She's washed, according to the tradition, but evidently they didn't have the takrakim there. There was a certain expense to it. So they must have just covered her, because it says they wash her here, and they lay her in an upper room, in an upper chamber. And it says, for as much as Lida is nigh unto Joppa, it's about 10 miles away, and they must have heard of Aeneas there and what happened. And the disciples had heard that Peter was there in Lydda, and they sent unto him two men desiring, imploring, begging him that he would not delay. Quick, you need to come. She's still warm. You know, get down there. You know, you need to come now to come unto them and not delay. Then Peter arose, and he went with them, And when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber. And all the widows stood by weeping and showing the coats and garments which Tabitha with Dorcas had made while she was with them. Very interesting picture. Peter had gone with Jesus into the house of Jairus. His daughter was dead. When he came into the house of Jairus, it said people were wailing, making a noise there. And when Jesus said, hey, don't cry, she's not dead, said they laughed him to scorn. They were professional mourners that were hired to do that duty. The big difference here is Peter comes in and these widows genuinely are convulsing and weeping because they love this woman. That part of the scene is very different. Luke mentions widows five times in his gospel. And this is the second time now in the book of Acts he mentions widows. I think as a physician and in that Roman world, he had an affinity. You know, he he felt for them. And he mentions now this group of widows that no doubt Tabitha had cared for. They're convulsing. It's a genuine tears. They're they're weeping. And they're showing Peter the garments, the things that she had made. She has, this is the ministry of the sewing needle. You may not preach. Got a needle? Right? We, we so minimize the simple things. Sometimes to send somebody a card. Sometimes to drop off a meal at the house. Sometimes to say, hey, we saw this sweater and we picked it up for you. Sometimes just a phone call. We've been praying about you. For some reason, you've been on our hearts. You never know. She's got a sewing needle. She made some clothes. You know, she, she took care of these less unfortunate, unfortunate people. And they're all weeping and crying and showing Peter what she had done. Peter, because he had been at the house of Jairus, put them all forth. He asked them to leave. That's what Jesus did at the house of Jairus. He put them all out except Peter, James, and John. And isn't this interesting? It says, then he kneeled down and prayed. Try it. You know, there's no official posture for praying. I sit and pray. You say grace at the table I'm sitting. Uh, lots of times when I get up in the morning, I'm sitting with a cup of coffee so I don't pass out praying. I pray in the car all the time because of the way people drive all around me. And I'm sitting, and you have to pray with your eyes opened. Sometimes we think it's fold your hands, close your eyes. You do that to your kids so they're not distracted. Of course, they do this the whole time. I saw him with his eyes open. Well, how'd you see him? If your eyes were closed, you were praying. Try getting on your knees. He's your master. You call him Lord. You can't call him that unless you're his servant. And sometimes it will just do your heart good. Now, I understand some of you, you got knee problems, you can't do it. You can get on your knees in your heart, though. But those of you who can, it's a good thing to do once in a while. He's our Lord and Savior. He died on the cross for us, and he loves us. We're here together tonight because of him. Our paths would never have crossed if he hadn't gone to the cross for us. The Son of God, our Savior. And it's good medicine for us sometimes to get on our knees, say, Jesus, Lord, I love you. I need help, Lord. I need your strength. I need your direction. Old, here's this old fisherman, Peter. Puts out the ladies and says, Lord, no, I was with you when this happened in the house of Jairus. He gets onto his knees. 
And he prayed. How long? We're not told. And turning him to the body, notice that, said, Tabitha, arise. He heard Jesus say, Talitha kumai, little lamb, arise. He says, gazelle, arise. And she opened her eyes. That's how we know she's not in the Takrakim, because it says she saw Peter. It doesn't say she opened her eyes and wrapped, took it over her head. However, they had laid her out there. When she opens her eyes, she sees Peter. It says Peter turned to the body. She wasn't there. She wasn't there. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Again, teaching in the church about soul sleep is nonsense. It's not real. You know, there's nine people through the scripture that are raised from the dead. Jesus is the only one with a real resurrection. The rest of them got to die a second time, which is really a bummer. You know. Um, the widow uh, of Zarephath, when Elijah lays on the boy who's dead and prays three times, it says his soul came back into him again. The soul's not in the body. When you and I breathe our last, we're immediately in the presence of the Lord. And the old bag of bones can lay there until the Lord fixes it and raises it up. And Peter speaks to the body, it says. Isn't that interesting? Peter speaks to the body and says, Tabitha Kumai. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. What a... You know, what a strange experience. And did she, you know, the nine people in the New Testament that are raised from the dead, none of them talk about their near-death experience or what they saw on the other side. Uh, Lazarus wasn't near. He was way past. He stunketh. None of them come back and tell us about the other side. You know, it doesn't say the woman got up and say, I can't believe you called me back here. Do you know where I was? Do you know what I was doing? You called me back to this down you know, it says she opened her eyes. How remarkable. Now, let me tell you something. You've been the viewings, right? You've been the viewings. If, if you were paying your respects, standing at the coffin, and the person went like this. <laughs> Clear. Boom, boom. You know, we'd have to paddle you and bring you back. Just imagine, he prays over. She'd been dead probably a couple of days by now. They had to send and get Peter and have him come. She opens her eyes. I love this. It's what we're going to do in glory. She opened her eyes. She sat up. And he gave her his hand. He saw Jesus do it to the little Jairus' daughter. And he lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. What a joy that was for him because he saw these widows weeping and brokenhearted. He presented her alive. I, there was more crying after the resurrection than there was at the death, I guarantee you. And it was known throughout all of Joppa. I bet it was. And isn't it interesting, it says here, many believed in the Lord. It says over in verse 35 that when Aeneas was healed, who was a crippled for eight years, that all that dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. They all believed. Here it says many. Isn't that strange? You would think a resurrection would have more of an impact on you than someone who's crippled. But it says many believed in the Lord. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon a Tanner. He stays at the house of Simon a Tanner. Very, very interesting. Well, if the Lord tarries, we'll go there next week. A tanner's home was considered unkosher. He worked with dead animals. He worked with skins. He was always in touch with blood and so forth. A tanner's home had to be outside the city walls because it had a smell. Ladies, if you got married and after you get married found out the guy you married was a tanner, that was legal grounds for divorce. You could just say, I can't believe you didn't tell me this stinky house. See ya. You were allowed to do that. Peter is there with Simon the Tanner. And from there, God is going to take him to the house of Cornelius. And when Peter is laying at the house of Simon the Tanner, no doubt he's seeing the wineskins hang there. 
And he's thinking of his master saying, you can't put new wine in old skins, Peter. We need new skins so that it doesn't rupture. And he's going to take him to the Gentiles from here and put new wine in new skins. What an interesting, interesting thing. I, Peter's one of the guys I'm looking forward to talking to because he makes mistakes like I do, so we can be buddies, you know. Uh, what an interesting picture the Lord puts before us here as now he's going to take him. He's going to let down this... Uh, this sheet with all kinds of animals on it three times and say to Pillar, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, not so, Lord. Those phrases don't go together. There's no such thing as not so, Lord. You know, it, what an interesting picture. Um, I was up at, we were up at Ten Graves at a men's conference up in Maine. Those guys are just unbelievable. If we enter the tribulation, they're not even going to know it. Nothing's going to change in their lives. They're still going to get the venison and all the woods. They're still going to light their wood stove up. Nothing will change up there. Who cares if there's no electricity or food in the stores? And uh, Ken got up to, to say grace at lunch, and he said, Lord, your word says kill and eat. All right, bless it. Amen. And everybody outside was cooking venison and moose and all the stuff they had killed. They all had... They all had their uh, their grills, their Weber grills in the back of their pickup trucks. And all this, it looked like a scene from the sanctuary in Jerusalem. All this smoke is going up, you know. So the Lord's going to say, Peter, kill and eat. And he's going to say, I've been kosher my whole life. You can't expect me to do this. And he's going to say, don't, don't you ever proclaim what I've called clean, unclean, common, Peter. And he's going to use that then to take them to, to you and I. We were dead meat without it. You and I. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Guys, what can I do for Jesus? Got a needle? Got a wrench? Got a spatula? Got a computer? This gal changed the course of the known world, making clothes for the less fortunate. Lord, we put these things before you. We thank you. There's so much imagery here, Lord. You know that, uh, that Lord, you, you bring these images before us. You're the master teacher, Lord, what we see in our heart and our mind. It so stays with us in such a wonderful way. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the freedom that we have to look at these things. Lord, in the midst of all the insanity we're living in, all the craziness around us, Lord, in the middle of everything that would divide us, Lord, Knit our hearts together, Lord. You're the one with that great sewing needle in your hand, Lord, to make us one, to sew us together, Lord. In all of this controversy, let those around us know we're your disciples by the love that we have one for another. Lord, so many of us were crippled, paralyzed in sin, and no chance in the world of getting up except for your miraculous touch. So many of us were beyond that, Lord. We were all dead in trespasses and sins, Lord. And you gave us life. You raised us. And Lord, we pray that we might serve you, that we might bend our knees in a new way, bend our hearts, Lord. We think of the old revivalists in Wales saying, Lord, bend me. Do that to us, Lord. Wet eyes, broken heart, bent knees. Please, Lord, we believe we're asking according to your will, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name and for your glory. Amen.